Good evening. I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online platform um, for events. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the Phelan United States Center, which is hosting tonight's event. This evening's event is the first in the center's great lineup of speakers this year. And to kick things off, I'm delighted to be able to welcome back to the center one of LSE's favorite speakers and an old friend, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is the CEO of New America and the Bert G. Kerstetter University Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. Anne-Marie has worn, worn many hats over the course of her distinguished career from teaching international law at Harvard to leading Princeton School of Public and International Affairs as Dean to serving as the Director of Policy Planning in the Department of State under Hillary Clinton, to her current position at New America, one of the most dynamic think tanks in Washington. Along the way, Professor Slaughter has published countless articles and essays and multiple books, including Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family, and the Idea That Is America, Keeping Faith with Our Values in a Dangerous World. She has a new book out entitled Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. It's received a great deal of advanced praise and we're eager to have her join us tonight to talk about the book and its core message about personal and collective renewal. A few words about the format this evening. Anne-Marie will get us started with about 20 minutes of comments. We'll then open it up for discussion. We've left plenty of time for for questions, so please don't be shy. You can send your questions to us via the Q&A um, function on Zoom, and I'll do my level best to put as many of them as possible to Anne-Marie during the discussion period. Now, normally at this point, I would ask you to put your hands together to give our speaker one of those warm LSE welcomes that we're famous for, that of course is not possible tonight. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Anne-Marie, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you back at, with us at the LSE this evening. Peter, thank you. I truly wish that I were in London with all of you. I have spoken at LSE before. It's one of my favorite institutions. And I'm, I'm at least happy we can do it this way. But I have to say, I'm looking forward to coming back. I'm particularly happy to be able to talk about renewal. Uh, and as you said, this is a book that is personal and organizational and also national. And because, of course, we're in this format, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it might mean internationally as well. I'll start just by reading from the introduction to kind of set the scene. And I will just show the book also. <laughs> um, so the, chapter, uh, the introduction is called When Leadership Means Having to Say You're Sorry. It was the worst day of my professional life. I rode the train from Princeton to Washington that morning, lead in my stomach, reviewing and editing my remarks one last time. Waiting for the elevator in my building, I squared my shoulders and arranged my face to be able to greet our receptionist and other staff members on my way to my office. At one o'clock, I made my way down the stairs and into our main event space to speak to a packed crowd of well over a hundred employees with dozens more listening in by phone. 
I took a deep breath and began with an apology. New America, the organization I lead, was in the midst of a full-blown crisis caused by an employee's accusation that we had decided to fire him and his colleagues due to pressure from a funder. The accusation was neither accurate nor fair, either with regard to New America or the funder, but it was calculated successfully to create a media storm and to put New America and my leadership in the worst possible light. The result, I told the staff, has been a set of events that has damaged New America's reputation for intellectual integrity and independence in the public eye, a reputation that is our lifeblood. I stand here now not to defend, but to apologize to all of you that this episode has imperiled the extraordinary work we do and to figure out what I and we can do to repair the damage going forward. I'm sorry. For the next 90 minutes, I answered tough questions from the floor and from current and former New America fellows on the phone, including celebrated writers and investigative reporters. Toward the end, a seasoned Washington hand stood up to say, this doesn't happen in DC. Leaders don't apologize and answer hard questions. Perhaps half the room broke into applause, but the other half sat on their hands. A few members of my leadership team also stood up to speak and share responsibility. Others remained silent. That's a memory I just as soon forget for obvious reasons, but it's actually the beginning of the book and it's the beginning of my own journey of renewal. I chose to make the book personal as well as political in part, frankly, to draw a wider readership than I think a standard policy book would draw. Uh, there are no subheads in the book. It's, it weaves together uh, memory, reflection, research, and a certain amount of, of uh, manifesto. I start personally also, though, because I believe at least in the United States, and I think in many other countries, and also in how our countries engage the world, that we have to have a certain amount of personal transformation as well, that it is actually impossible to transform as a country without individuals doing a lot of work on their own to come to see themselves and others differently. What I then did uh, what, during this period was to go and talk to one, my board chair, who happens to be, was, uh, actually is a member of my board, David Bradley, uh, who was an, the chair of Atlantic Media and used to be the publisher of the Atlantic Magazine. And he said something that is probably the biggest lesson of this whole experience. And again, something that I think applies to people, organizations, and countries. He said, run toward the criticism. He used the example of, let's say you're having an argument with your spouse or your partner, and it is very clear to you that your spouse or partner is 98% wrong, clearly. But maybe, just maybe, this little corner of your mind would acknowledge maybe your spouse or partner is 2% right in their critique of whatever it is you're doing. David said, 
run toward that criticism. So I called 20 board members and asked each of them to tell me what they really thought of my leadership. Not all bad. Uh, and I'll say I didn't accept all of it. I pushed back on some things, but I listened hard. I talked to staff members. I realized that there'd been a pattern with some of what was happening now and some of what had happened in previous jobs. So I went back uh, to my bosses in previous jobs. It was not fun. But I've come to think that if you're going to transform, it has to be a process that looks backward and forward at the same time. And this is why I call it renewal. I, I, I care a lot about words. I think language matters. Renewal is not restoration, but neither is it reinvention. It's both. It looks backwards. That's the re part. And I argue that we have to look backwards with radical honesty. I look in the mirror and see just how honest you can be about what other people, people see. Now, again, not everything they see is right. And particularly if you are someone uh, who is the subject of bias and historical discrimination, you're going to have to push back a lot of what they see. But for someone like me who has lots of advantages, it was very important to try not to rationalize, not be defensive, to face who I was with radical honesty. And then here's the other part of renewal. If you have the strength to do that and the courage, then you also have what it takes to build something new. Something You, you can then gain the confidence and the belief uh, to build something new, again, individually, but as I found, even better together. And that's something, again, that I would say about uh, organizations, and many of our organizations are being challenged to be really honest, for instance, about not just the systemic racism out there, which many of us are very good at, at issuing statements about and condemning, but actually looking at ourselves. Certainly at New America, many of our employees wanted to know that whether we were really going to look at ourselves and our own behavior, not just what other people were doing. And similarly, as a country, uh, how essential it is to face your full history. For the United States, we cannot move forward without facing that history. And many people are telling very different histories uh, than the, certainly the white privileged narrative, really a triumphalist narrative uh, that I grew up with. So step one really is this looking backwards with radical honesty. For me then, the next phase of the journey was building resilience uh, and learning to lead much more collectively. It was essentially after an intense focus on myself to stop focusing on myself and to reach out uh, to my colleagues, not just as sounding boards, but really as, uh, as a team. Uh, but this isn't just about teamwork. It's about how learning how uh, to, to lead not only from the center, but from the margin, to think about how to share power. Uh, so that today, and I, I can answer questions about this, I, I lead very differently and far more collaboratively. I am far more likely to think about 
how can I bring people into the circle of leadership, or if not leadership, simply the sense of belonging and and having ownership for an organization, uh, than a notion of leading by being out in front by expecting people to follow. So that's a, a snapshot of my own journey, which I tell at, at greater length. But I don't think I would have written this book. I wouldn't have written this book had it just been about my journey. I'm, I'm you know, this is not Barack Obama writing. I'm not, I'm not in a position to write a memoir. I think the more important piece is to transpose some of those lessons and try to apply them organizationally and nationally by analogy, right? I mean, a nation is not a person, neither is an organization, but there are some very important parallels. Looking backwards, facing our past, I've already talked about. But then what about the present and the future? So I'm going to talk about this in the U.S. context, and then I will broaden it out. In the U.S. context, facing our past means, again, engaging many voices on our history, understanding, as one of my African-American colleagues once said to a class he was teaching for me at Harvard Law School, he came up and said to a group of foreign uh, students, he said, you know, the history of the United States is a history of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Speaking, of course, about our treatment of Native Americans, he actually added crimes against humanity, enslaving people. There's a lot of really ugly stuff. But at the same time, listening to different voices, Native American voices, Af African American voices, Latinx, now many, many other groups uh, who've come from around the world, that's a much richer history. And as we listen to those voices, new themes come out. The United States has always had a dominant white culture, but not just white, a dominant Anglo-Saxon culture and a highly individualist culture. And probably we will always be on the individualist end uh, of many other countries, in part because of the way uh, immigrants came uh, and forged uh, new lives. But just to take one example, if you read white male accounts of going across the Great Plains in the wagon train. You get this, you know, there I was forging a new destiny, pushing out the frontier. It's a starkly rugged individualist narrative. If you read what women write, the women on those wagon trains, it's a, it's a narrative of what I call rugged interdependence. It's all about we depended on every other wagon in that train, right? You had many, you had like 20 wagons. And that was essentially a traveling village. And you hear when you read these narratives, where we landed, we couldn't have survived without our neighbors. If you read African-American narratives in the 19th century, what you're reading is not east to west, it's south to north. It's the stories of abolitionism, of the Underground Railroad, it's again, stories of interdependence as much as independence. So I think the next stage when you're thinking about countries, first of all, facing your past, but then embracing many, many more stories. And again, thinking about reaching to the margins of traditional society and bringing those stories in and those people in as who you are today. That then puts you in a position 
to really rethink. Not this is this is where it's both and. For the United States, it needs to be pluribus and unum, many and one. So it's not about jettisoning everything that was. Some of it we do have to throw out, but there's a lot still to honor, even as we have to reckon and heal. But if you then bring that population together, you have the ability to start really thinking big about big, big changes. Because instead of focusing only on the past or the divisions of the future, you have the ability to develop a common vision. So that's one account of where the United States uh, can go. And I talk about uh, 2026, uh, which will be the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence uh, and what that could look like if we face the country we are today. In the remaining time, I wanna talk about what that means for the United States in the world, and then talk about what that might mean for Britain or France or other European countries, indeed, most of the advanced industrial democracies are post-industrial now, uh, but probably every country. So thinking about the United States and the world, to me, by far the most exciting dimension of where this country is as we move from a white majority nation to a plurality nation, which in, by 2027, that will be true of all Americans under 30, and by 2040 somewhere, we it will be true of, of all Americans is that we are then a country that reflects the entire world, not just Europe, which was true for a long time, and of course, Africa, although we rep uh, American uh, population reflected Africa because of enslaved people, it wasn't voluntary immigration. But now, of course, a whole new wave of immigrants from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, from the Middle East, we will be a country uh, and are increasingly that genuinely reflects every country in the world. If you look at the ties, if you look at capital flows, investment flows, trade, education, culture, if you look at a map of the US and those flows with other countries in the world, the thickest lines are to Europe because that is where the dominant majority of the United States came from. But going forward, we have the chance to build those, those flows, again, of trade, investment, capital generally, but also education, culture, diplomacy, uh, also science uh, with all those countries. That is an extraordinary asset and one that if the United States can actually build on it is I think our greatest asset in the world. It is certainly not true of China or Russia or other uh, countries who we often feel in, in rivalry with, but more importantly, it is true in a way that helps us solve global problems. So that's the United States or a vision of what the United States uh, could, could look like uh, going forward. The other thing I would say though, is the United States also needs to be radically honest about where we've been and what we've done. And we've just seen this coming through Afghanistan in, in just a horrible ending uh, to the United States uh, engagement there. I, you know, when you heard President Biden, and he may have been, I think he was right to talk about the, an end to the war, but he needed to own the many ways in which we created the conditions to allow for a return of the Taliban. 
how we fueled corruption, how we were not actually able to create the kind of government that could command the support of a majority of the Afghan people or tackle, again, the issues of corruption, abuse of power, warlords, lots of things that maybe no country could have done, but we tried. And we owe, we owe it not only to Afghans, but to the rest of the country to be much more honest. So what would that mean for Britain and other countries in Europe and elsewhere? Interestingly, if you look at the demographics, and actually you can see this in Britain if you come through Heathrow, the Britain of today is starkly different uh, demographically in terms of the population from the Britain I knew growing up and certainly as a student in the early 80s. So too is our France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, all of those countries, and I would start with Britain, Britain too will probably be a plurality nation by 2050. How, what does that mean for British history? Many of those Britons, of course, will have come from colonies, will have seen a very different vision of British power. And indeed, Barack Obama saw British power from the lens of having a Kenyan father, and he didn't automatically think of the special relationship the way I would with a Belgian grandfather who fought next to the British SAS in World War II. We have to internalize those different narratives. Britain will have to internalize those different narratives, but at the same time realize what an incredible asset it is to be able to be connected as LSE is, if we look at the, the student populations of so many British universities, how can you build on that in trade uh, and investment again, but more than that, culturally, diplomatically, educationally, all the ways in which uh, these ties uh, can help us. So we're at a, at least in the United States, and I think in many countries, at a, at a crisis point. Uh, these demographic tensions, along with technological change as well, and climate, are forcing huge changes that make people really frightened. Uh, and often then they turn on one another. In my view, if we can harness that energy and have the courage to face where we've been, where we are, and that means, just as I said, acknowledging where we are wrong, which is one of the best ways to get somebody else to talk to you about where they are wrong, we actually have the ability to draw on what is far more positive in many of our countries and really then think about really big visions and building something new for the future. And I will leave it there and I very much look forward to your questions. Well, that's great, Anne-Marie. Um, um, so it's a terrific summary of the, the book, of the argument in the book. And an extension. I've read the read the book, and so you've kind of gone beyond the book by talking about the kind of um, international setting. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of uh, questions coming in, but I think I'd like to exercise maybe the prerogative, the chair's prerogative, and maybe put the first question to you. And and in a sense, um, maybe push back a little bit, or it's not so much push back, but to maybe delve into the analogy between the individual and the collective or the nation and, and kind of where the limits are. One of the things that struck me when I was reading the, the book, and I think this just reflected the fact that you had to give it to the copy editor um, before January 6th, yeah. is that um, 
you know, it 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 doesn't dwell on 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 January sixth. And and I'm wondering if we could get you to talk a little bit about you know what the takeaways are for the case that you make for renewal. Because on the one hand, it would seem to me to really underscore the urgency, the urgent need for renewal that you, uh, you know, so deftly outline. On the other hand, the political divisions that the insurrection capitalized on, it seems to me, and that in my, from my perspective, have only deepened since, would seem to make the kind of pluralism where you, you end up in the book, the kind of pluralism that you're calling for almost more elusive. And so I guess, I, how should we think about this and how do we get out of that bind? Because, um, I mean, you rightly point to these, the intergenerational, racial, cultural divisions in the country that the country needs to overcome, but it is stuck in this institutional bind right now that's partisan, as you know, and that is just played out in, uh, you know, in, in, in Washington in, in through, through our, you know, national institutions. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is, but I'm hoping that <laughs> some thoughts about how we get there. Oh. Well, I will start by saying, uh, you know, even in the book, I say, look, either we're gonna tear ourselves apart and I don't think that's impossible. I, I think, I don't know what the percentage chance is, but it's, it, it is a non-negligible chance that the United States really could find itself in civil war or at least sustained political violence. And we have had periods of sustained political violence before. This time, it is more racial. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, it's, look, the, the January 6th was openly, some of those folks were openly white supremacists, right? They're carrying Confederate flags. So part of what I'm calling for is let's just face this, right? This is not the Republican Party and the Democrats as they've traditionally been. It's not conservatives and liberals. It is a, uh, it, it's a tremendous fracturing in part by people who feel, and not everyone, but in part by people who genuinely feel that they're losing the country that they love, that they knew. And again, that's true in Europe as well. I mean, I've, I've heard folks, you know, in France say, you know, the, these North Africans, they're not French, they cook different food, they look different, they sound different. So these are, these are uh, fractures in, in many countries. Uh, and I'm not, I don't think renewal is just going to happen. Part of what I'm doing is to say to people, look, we're, we've got tremendous issues here. I think we are better off if we face them directly, if we, and at least for many of us, to really face, you know, a different story of the United States. But then, and this is where I do think that I could reach out to, and many of us could reach out to, maybe not, not the folks who actually assaulted the Capitol on January 6th, but many others, even those who had voted for Trump, but I think probably 20% of those who voted for Trump. If you can also tell a narrative of love of country, because this part of the divide, and you know this because you were in Texas for a long time, 
Uh, part of the divide is this sense that, you know, the left, the Democrats, the people of color don't love the country. That's ridiculous, right? There is a deep patriotism here or a love of country. James Baldwin always said, I love my country so much uh, that I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. So that it's to try to create a space where everyone, if everyone really is willing to be honest, then there's a lot that all of us can acknowledge about uh, places where we've been wrong, uh, including where we've been wrong about the other side. And then some space, and this is the part that I really insist on, to actually imagine a vision of what our country could be. Because that is also, so for Trump voters, it was make America great again. That's exactly where renewal won't go, right? It's not restoration. But it will say, yes, there was, there have been and are great things about this country, and there could be so many more if we can embrace who we're becoming. So it's an effort to create a space that I think is a politically productive space. I also think, and I write about it at the end, we have a deeply unrepresentative political system. And unless we can change it, I'm really, I, I, I worry deeply. But part of what I think has to be renewal is to adopt ranked choice voting and, and sort of a lot of big structural political reforms that would get us to a more representative democracy. And I think we can do that. I would privilege that as sort of first on my agenda of big change. But I don't, this is not automatic and it does, it's, people have to, to see their own role in helping save us. And it's not just going to be voting one way or the other because we're just cycling. Right, right. So I see we have people on the platform from, well, the UK, the US, but India, Thailand, Lithuania, right. Germany, Peru, Panama, and Uganda. Fire away. We're, we're sending in your questions. We have one question here right now from Abimanyu Goyal, I think, if I've pronounced that correctly. So we're in a moment of crisis. And the question is, do you see a leader emerging out of the group of leaders in the U.S. right now that somebody Somebody who can move forward, I, I'm taking some liberty with the question here, but someone who can, I don't know, somehow capture what you're talking about that can, you know, kind of offer, um, uh, kind of reach out to perhaps the other side, or maybe that somehow straddles both sides. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I don't know if this, you know, uh, this individual is asking for an individual name, and you may not want to go there, but you might be able to kind of characterize what that individual would would be like, especially on the basis just kind of of your own experience, learning about what works in leadership and and, and what doesn't. Yeah. Well, I think there are there are a number of mayors out there, next generation mayors that I who I think have really had to navigate these issues in their cities, often uh, mayors from blue cities and red states uh, who have had to, to navigate these issues. I think Stacey Abrams is a great example 
of someone who on the one hand is uncompromising about needing to have our political system represent everyone, right? She fair vote. Uh, I mean, uh, re you're really insisting on registering lots and lots of people. But, and I quote her in the book, if you read about how she talks about her role uh, in politics, it's representing everyone, right? It is not a divisive message. And she has actually said, uh, when people, when companies started to boycott Georgia uh, because of its voting uh, rights laws, she, her view was no, do not boycott us, come uh, and be part of it. So, and, and part of that's because she's been in Georgia a long time. You can't survive in Georgia without talking to folks who are radically different than you are. Uh, and I do think that she's, she's mastered that. More generally, I think that there are, is a new generation of politicians, many of whom are of color, who in many ways are better placed to try to, to, to bring together, to take some more conservative positions on some issues in ways that many white politicians can't because then they're, they're just caught. Uh, I, I, and I think they're gonna be people you know, people like Pete Buttigieg, I'd also say where, you know, he's a white Christian evangelist or from evangelist background, but he's also he's gay and progressive, but he fought in the military. So it's, it's this intersection, again, of being able to say, yes, I love this country. I stand for this country, but I don't stand uncritically. And I am willing to own the whole the totality of who we are. Those are the kinds of politicians I think we need. So we have a question here from Patrick Flynn, who just describes himself as a member of the public. So, <laughs> we're um, all for that. Is, yeah, we're all for that. So that's great. Um, and it actually taps into um, a, an issue that you talk about in the book about um, wealth inequality. And in a sense, this allows you to put on the new America hat here too and run with this. So um, how should we address, how much of a problem is it? To what extent, you know, is it a problem? But also he's asking, what's, how would you address it? What's the best way of trying to tackle this problem and reduce the inequalities? So I definitely think it's an enormous problem. I mean, I really, Starting before the 2008 financial crisis, I remember getting invited to various fancy events and thinking to myself that these resorts that I was being invited to were starting to make me think of Imperial Rome. I mean, they were just over the top <sighs> opulent and thinking about, you know, this is starting to this is like countries in Latin America or other countries where Americans would read about, you know, a high Gini coefficient and think you've got a small group at the top and a huge group at the bottom. You can't sustain a stable democracy that way. We're not there yet, but we're heading in that direction. It's a it's a, and, and it, you know, we've seen this. The middle class is thinning and highly precarious. And for young people, even young people who come from affluent backgrounds, you know, health insurance, student debt, all these, these issues. So I think it is an enormous uh, problem. You know, I'm perfectly happy uh, to tax uh, extremely wealthy people more, but I don't, I actually think we need something much bigger than that, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, rethinking 
our our brand of capitalism. And when I say our, I mean U.S. to larger, maybe Anglo-Saxon more broadly, but but really capitalism that is non-sustainable uh, and non-sustainable in terms of planetary terms, but also non-sustainable in the sense of winner take all, allowing folks to, to constantly measure success in terms of growth rather than human flourishing. And there's a lot of work there, right? The, all the work that's being done on beyond neoliberalism is saying you need to, you need to internalize externalities. You need to take account of st stakeholders, not just shareholders. But I'd go further than that. I'd talk about the kind of, of economy, again, that says growth is a measure but growth and unemployment don't actually capture the well-being of most human beings. And if we had the measures that did, then you get a lot of policies that say, you know, to increase human flourishing and well-being, you've got to provide uh, care and not just healthcare, but care and education and investment in others in ways that would lead you uh, to a much more equal, at least foundation. Uh, but those, again, part of this, what I'm arguing for is that you face the past so that you can go forward and make really big changes. Uh, and this is one. So we have a question here from a, um, a PhD student in international relations ah. here at LSE. Her name is Sophie Calder. So here's the question. To some listeners, your vision of an international USA or UK sounds exciting. It offers an opportunity to benefit from a wider scope of ideas and contributions. But to others, it, it sounds like a narrative that privileges the globalists, the people who can afford to travel and generally dwell in cities. What happens to people who feel disenfranchised by globalization? How can they be included in your vision too? Well, it was it was uh, Theresa May who I guess said, if if you think you're from anywhere, you're actually from nowhere, <laughs> or you think you're from everywhere, you're actually from nowhere. Uh, so I actually I don't think this actually privileges globalists because what I'm thinking about are all the taxi drivers in Washington D.C. who are overwhelmingly Ethiopian. Uh, and just as one example, there's a very large Ethiopian American community in DC. And when I talk to them, I always hear, I always say, when is the last time you went back home? And it's always within 18 months to two years. And I say, and when's the last time you talk to folks uh, back home? And it depends if they're, they may be first or second generation, often first generation. And they'll say, well, of course, you know, FaceTime or Skype or whatever, I'm in, in touch with folks at home all the time. So these are not people that I'm imagining are going to do the global conference circuit. These are people who just like my Belgian mother, who, you know, took me back to Belgium uh, and had and has family in Belgium. And so, you know, when she gave a, a show, she's an artist. She showed it in Brussels as well in the United States, uh, who are naturally building ties with the countries they came from. Some, of course, have more money and then they can fly back and forth, but all, if they're starting a small business or an import-export business, if they are uh, bringing people over, if they are, are thinking about where, where their children can go as an exchange student, 
they are building ties with those countries. And with China, just as an example, you have you have many Chinese, of course, who are studying in the United States. You have many Chinese Americans, right, who are uh, who, who, who are, have come and settled here. You also have an entire generation of Chinese girls who were adopted by American families who are American, but Chinese ethnically and often have a relationship. They either speak uh, Mandarin or they want to go back. Those ties are, are really important. And again, they're not globalists. I actually think these are people who are very rooted uh, in different parts of the United States. And if you look at where uh, Central Americans and Mexicans have landed, they're all over the United States now, Guatemalans, Ecuadorians, uh, who are then naturally going to have ties back to their countries. Uh, and the same would be true in Britain uh, or France or uh, many other countries. So the, it's recognizing and nurturing those and, and seeing that as a huge advantage. Often, at least the American foreign policy elite tends to think of groups like that just as diaspora groups with political views. They don't want to deal with them. That's a mistake. Uh, again, if you just look at how U.S.-European uh, relations have evolved, those are family relations that turn into commercial and other relations. So we, we have a question here from um, Mark um, Gitao from a university student from Nairobi. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about intergenerational equity and does it play any role with regard to the projected plurality of the societies you described? Now, I know this is part of the book, so this is just a, a platform for you. <laughs> Develop the <laughs> argument. Great question. Um, is, is, uh, yes. Um, uh, well, I mean, to begin with, it is the younger generation who are the plurality country that is coming, right? So, as I said, by 2027, really just six years away, uh, Americans under 30, there will be no white majority. And so, in many ways, uh, and that is, of course, the generation that cares the most about intergenerational equity and rightly, right? I mean, we are, you know, I have children in, in their 20s and they can look at me and say, you know, what were you doing, right? You know, you are leaving us a planet that is literally in flames part of the time uh, and flooding part of the time. Uh, but more broadly, also, I think you're leaving us a society uh, and a political system that are just not equipped for the country we are. Uh, so I, if, if you accept this idea of deep pluralism, uh, then you also have to look to the generation that embodies it, that is learning how to live with it. Uh, that gives me hope. Uh, although I'm not so naive as to think, you know, everybody under 30 just, you know, loves each other and thinks the same way. Of course, that's not true. But if you look at the polls, there's more common ground there uh, than there is in my generation or, or Gen X. I'm a, I'm a boomer. Uh, so I do, I think partly I was thrilled to see in the German election yesterday, you know, this, there was a big article in the New York Times on how young many of the new parliamentarians are. That's true for Americans as well. I think if I were coming out of college today, I might run for state legislature or, or mayor or 
uh, maybe maybe national legislature. And I think the more we get younger people, the better off we are. Adam Rimmelt from uh, London via North Carolina. Ah. So um, you briefly mentioned the idea of ranked choice voting, um, but what are some of the other concrete changes that you would make to the electoral system that will promote proportional representation and lead to positive change? And maybe I could just kind of add to that. Where do you come down on the filibuster? Yeah. So on the filibuster, I, I do I do think we ought to get rid of it. Um, I understand the dangers, but it it is a great example of a check that the founders never thought was necessary, that was imposed, that was imposed in a, or or adopted uh, by uh, you know a Senate in a very different era when in fact. You had four parties, not two. You had, you know, liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats, liberal Republicans, conservative Republicans. There was much more possibility of compromise. And indeed, in the 1950s, the complaints all were all, you know, American democracy is boring because everybody agrees. Uh, but in this era of completely polarized parties where there's almost no overlap, right, there are six people right in the Senate, uh, you know, who, who can find common, seemingly find common ground. Uh, I think we do have to go to majority rule. I also say that because, again, I think um, so much of the disaffection is because government just isn't delivering. Right? We're just not making people's lives better uh, in ways that I do think, and I would, I would say, I think that the Biden needs to get a lot of this through uh, to build a new foundation. What I would say more broadly is I talk about ranked choice voting. As Peter says, this is a way of getting uh, proportional representation in a uh, presidential system, not a parliamentary system. Um, I think it's, the best is a kind of combination of open primaries where you don't have playing to the base. Uh, you get you vote uh, in open primaries and among the final, the top four or five candidates, then you simply have an instant runoff. You, 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 you basically keep voting until somebody gets a majority because, you know, we are being governed by minorities. We've got presidents elected by minorities. Uh, and it just seems to me that, that in, a, in a democracy, you ought to be able to have a system that both allows, that, that insists that people be elected by a majority. And here's the other key point that would allow multiple parties, right? We, we actually have about six parties. If you actually look at where people fall on a political spectrum, but we're forced into an artificial duopoly because if you run one as a third party candidate, you're gonna be a spoiler. I also favor uh, multi-member districts, right? As opposed to one district uh, where there's, again, you would have lots more possibility and lots more choice uh, if you had multi-member districts and there's nothing that says you can't. Uh, and certainly I would support uh, you know, drawing commissions by and drawing electoral boundaries by neutral commissions. Uh, given how segregated we are in many ways, that's not going to fix everything, but it would be helpful. And then tremendous limits on, on campaign finance. But 
I don't, I really do think we have to start by creating electoral rules that allow for much more choice and representation. So we have a, a number of questions that um, kind of all boil down to the same thing. Um, this one from Margaret uh, Henry, what about education? Exclamation point and question mark. So put on your educators hat um, and um, thoughts about that kind of over the longer term, um, you know, that how one moves towards the kind of renewal that you're talking about, the role of education in moving us in that direction. Yeah, well, it's enormous. And New America, that's our biggest program. We work on, on early education through lifelong learning, higher ed, K through 12, all of it. And all of it needs major overhaul. Uh, starting with, I mean, really the most important investment the United States could make for our national security and our competitiveness uh, is not just pre-K, but early ed, really sort of age two on and something from, from uh, cradle to age two, uh, to shape the brains, you know, of our children in ways that allow them to reach their potential. Because, you know, what the brain development from zero to five determines not just what kids learn, but how much they can learn. So that was, that's the starting place. Uh, and then honestly, in K through 12, I'd get rid of property tax financing uh, for schools. Uh, and that's, you know, the, how could we possibly do that? Well, we, you know, we can do it. We have made really big changes before. It's just a question of thinking, are we in enough of a crisis to, to make them? Uh, but definitely this, the way we finance K through 12 is disastrous. Um, and then, you know, there are lots of other sort of less radical reforms, but reforms around engaging uh, communities uh, in, in, in education. Education is not just for schools. For higher ed, yes, I would, I don't know that I, I wouldn't have all free college. I would have free community college and I would radically reform uh, the system of, of student borrowing. Essentially, you know, universities are making money from the federal government off the backs of students. Uh, and it, it is, it, it, it's simply terrible. You're not demonstrating a connection between education and improved earning uh, over, over the career. So, and then civic education, of course, but, but again, just as, just to compete as a country and above all, if you think about an economy that, that, uh, or a political and economic system that, that focuses on human flourishing, then you have to invest in your people. And that means education. For people outside the United States, explain why community college is so important ah, yes. as a place to invest. So community colleges are two-year colleges. You get an associate's degree uh, all over the country, right? So they are literally in different communities, right, right here, generally by county. Uh, but there, And they are often, particularly for first-generation uh, people going to college, uh, or for low-income folks, it's the place where you can get a degree and work at the same time. I mean, only 14% of Americans go to four-year residential college. So, you know, here I sit in Princeton, New Jersey, you know, four-year residential college, 14% of Americans. So community colleges are the first rung on the higher education ladder. And if you make them free, 
and you allow them, some of them, to become four-year colleges so that kids don't lose, uh, drop out of the educational system if they try to transfer. There are all sorts of ways you can then connect them, either let them give four years or connect them to four-year institutions in ways that allow a transition. You're, you're catching a much, much wider group of Americans through the community college system than you are through even big public institutions, much less private. So we have a question here from another uh, MSc student in IPE ah. um, from Beijing, but based here uh, at LSE. The name is Rode, uh, Rude. Um, so um, the student asks, you emphasized radical honesty. As far as I can see, <laughs> very few political leaders have apologized for any mistakes. What do you think might be the causes of that tendency? This is irrespective of political system. So kind of across political systems. So I, I guess, you know, this allows one to go back to the whole question about kind of acknowledging when you're wrong and taking responsibility for it. Brings us yeah. full circle to the beginning of your talk. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And so let me start by saying in an age of social media and the way we have social media, I fully understand the dangers of, you know, apologizing uh, in, in ways that are easily distorted. And I remember when Hillary Clinton, I worked for her when she was secretary of state and she had to go around the world uh, and essentially apologize for WikiLeaks. Right. Because, you know, there it had been leaked that we were spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone. And, you know, we had to we had to repair relations with a lot of countries. And that was known as her apology tour. And it doesn't go over well with lots of voters who think it's weak. And I understand that, you know, to stand up and, and you know, tell say all the ways in which you're wrong, uh, depending on the context, can be can be dangerous. I still think that it can be, if, if done in the right way, it can be a tremendous source of strength. And you know, one of the things that's striking is, at least as a parent, and every parent I know would teach their kids this, when you're wrong, own up, face up, say you're wrong, and you know, apologize and move on. That's what character and integrity are. And yet somehow we get to our public figures, you know, that that's the kiss of death. Well, there's something wrong there. Uh, and I, what I want to say is countries that can acknowledge their failings or, and here let's take a sort of a different way of doing it, countries that have systems that at least allow those failings to be pointed out. Which is, which is what I think the strongest part of the U.S. is not that we're better people. We're not better people. But we do have a system where actually criticism of the government is not only tolerated, it's, it's encouraged in the sense of people uh, funded and supported. I think that you could stand up and say, you know, here are things we did wrong. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to, you may not even say, and we apologize. You just acknowledge you know, we recognize that these are things that where we where we let the Afghan people down, right? I mean, there are ways to to do this, but the point would be to say, just again, as you do with individuals, you know, leaders who can do that are really strong leaders. 
because then that's why I started with what I started with. It takes strength and confidence and courage and integrity to be able to 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 acknowledge those things. And that's what we should look for uh, in our leaders. So it, it would be a culture change, but I don't, and again, I don't think people are going to, you know, <laughs> navel gaze and grovel, but I think there's some room there uh, and it would behoove countries that are, or leaders who are willing to at least move part, part way down that road. Right. We have a few minutes left. I want to welcome folks from Turkey, Serbia, uh, Belgium, uh, France, Canada, and Ireland. And speaking of France, Kevin Ryan uh, from France has actually asked a couple questions, and this one I'm going to pose to you. How should the United States deal with fake news and conspiracy theories on social media? Um, more regulation? Yeah, definitely. More. I mean, it's a huge question, but yep. I, I'm sure that at New America, you folks are talking and thinking about this. Some some thoughts on this, I think, probably would be very welcome on the platform. Yeah. Uh, so definitely more regulation. And I will recommend another book that's just come out called System Error uh, by Robert Reich and Jeremy Weinstein uh, and Mehran Barsan. Uh, it's, it's a great, it, it, there's a computer scientist, an ethicist, and a political scientist writing about big tech. But fundamentally, we have to change the algorithms. Right. I mean, these companies are making money off sorting the most extreme material and targeting people with ever more extreme material. That's the business model. And until we tackle that, it's not going to get better. I mean, you really this Facebook whistleblower is saying, you know, look, Facebook has a choice between making more money and 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 combating Miss and disinformation, and even more than that, a process of radicalization. So Facebook is not, we, this is not, we're not going to count on self-policing. <laughs> These guys are in it to make money and their shareholders want them to make money. So government is going to have to regulate, but regulate at a far deeper level than just content curation, right? You're going to have to be liable for things, right? We're going to have to actually find ways to say, you know, if you're disseminating stuff that that yeah, proves to be false, that's not quite right because the falsity isn't the right make, but that 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 um, makes people more extreme. You actually are going to be liable in various ways. You have to change your algorithms, and the folks who do this work say you can do that. Uh, but and it's going to have to be more than the GDPR. I mean, Europe is is ahead of the United States, but Europe. It, doesn't have co these companies, right? We, we have to tackle them. Breaking them up is can help in some cases. I think we need to stop a lot of the mergers and acquisitions, but breaking them up isn't going to solve this problem. It's really in the algorithm and the business model, and we have to tackle it. It is a true menace to our democracy. On that note, we've reached the bewitching hour. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter today. Um, Anne-Marie, on behalf of the Fallon uh, United States Center and the LSE, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts about the challenges facing the United States and the possibilities for renewal. Gives me hope they couldn't be more timely. Thank you for being with us. Peter, thank you. And thanks to everyone in the audience. Great.